guys my name is rita avery tinder and i welcome you to it series where we talk about recent it cases and development globally if this is your first time joining us please don't forget to favorite my podcast on anchor so you don't miss out on any episode so on today's christmas it series edition we'll be talking brands fashion brands like gucci chanel tng tubo um, you know all your favorite fashion brands and it's really going to be an interesting one our guest for today is a public photo and an authority in the fashion um, world so let's meet our guest for today i hope you also have a good time like i am going to So, um, welcome to IP Series Brazil. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, so, I'm Rosie Burbage, an intellectual property lawyer and a partner at a London-based law firm called Gunner Cook. And, yeah, I've been working in intellectual property law and more specifically for fashion clients uh, for, I guess, about 20, 12 years now. Um, it got, time flies, particularly in 2020. <laughs> um, but my big claim to fame is my book uh, called European Fashion Law, A Practical Guide from Startup to Global Success, which came out in February 2019. Um, so I think that might be why I've been invited to join you guys. Yeah. So um, what is fashion law? Since that is like your core area of practice, what is fashion law in your own? So, I mean, obviously, there isn't a specific set of um, law that only applies to fashion, but there are laws that are more relevant for the fashion industry. So, for example, in the world of intellectual property, designs are much more important for fashion than patents. That's not to say that patents are never relevant, but they tend to be much more important for industries like pharmaceuticals. And similarly, um, things like franchising and distribution agreements are, um, and agency agreements are much more important for the fashion industry than potentially some others. And um, obviously things have got a lot more complicated over the last year, particularly for businesses who have quite a strong property portfolio because with so many shops being shut, um, that has had lots of interesting implications. So I suppose that's a slightly long-winded way of saying that fashion law is a combination of the different legal principles that are most relevant for the fashion industry. So you did mention fashion and change. What do you think um, is the impact of COVID-19 on the fashion industry, given the fact that every industry was affected by the lockdown and also the pandemic? I mean, I would say fashion has been particularly badly affected. Um, That's partly because it has quite an international supply chain. So even when the shops could still be open, it was quite difficult for a lot of businesses to fulfill orders. For example, if they manufactured in China, then obviously the Chinese lockdowns at the start of the year meant that it was difficult to get that um, those fashion items distributed. And then that, that problem has continued as time has gone on. 
There have also been problems with fulfillment warehouses, you know, for e-commerce businesses where the quite strict measures have had to be implemented to stop the spread of COVID-19 around those kind of environments. And then, you know, that's just at the, the sort of getting the goods to the consumer side of things. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, some shops have been shut. The the sort of the big problem has been on the demand side, and that's been not terribly consistent. It it depends quite a lot on the type of fashion business. So, for example, athleisure and more casual wear that's sold online have, has done okay. In some cases, they've been able to grow. But if a business is more focused on formal wear, um, you know, nobody's going to parties at the moment, um, or if they are, they definitely shouldn't be. So that that side of the fashion industry has really suffered because um, there just isn't the same demand that there would normally be. Um, and obviously things like weddings, I don't know um, how it is around the world, but in the UK, the maximum number of people who can attend a wedding is 15. So obviously... There was a fusion of tech in the fashion industry. Um, well, so technology is, is sort of... Um, when I was training many years ago, there was a lot of talk about the convergence of technology and media. And nobody really even thinks of that anymore you know, technology and media are pretty much synonymous. There's no huge differentiation there. And I think the same is happening in other industries, um, including ones where there's a tangible product like fashion. So obviously technology is helping in terms of the distribution process around e-commerce and that side of things. And then it's also making a big difference in terms of the sales side. So obviously social media is becoming much more important as a means of um, advertising and marketing products with a lot more things being purchased directly via Instagram, for example. Um, And then there's been a lot more innovation in terms of the production side. So clever fabrics, both in terms of like adding in smart technology into the actual fabric itself and looking from a sustainability perspective at the recycling of fabric and using recycled materials um, particularly things like uh, ocean plastic and that sort of thing so there's been some really fascinating changes that have happened over the last couple of years and I think that will continue Um, one trend that I'm really excited about is blockchain and using blockchain to be able to track products around the world and, um, you know, for it to identify particular products. Uh, And I think that will have some quite important implications for things like counterfeit goods and for um, just generally being able to understand the exact supply chain and hopefully prompt slightly different consumer decisions to be made as a result of that. The relationship between e-commerce and the fashion industry. I know you talked about, you just talked about that in the previous question. So, uh, I mean, obviously a lot of fashion products are sold via e-commerce now and that has exacerbated significantly over the last year when so many physical stores have been shut. 
and I I guess the the important thing like the connection maybe is that um fashion is possibly more at the driving end of e-commerce now I think a lot of e-commerce started off being more focused on things like books or cds where people knew what they were buying like it was a known product and now people are much more comfortable about buying something where they don't know what the material is going to feel like or whether the color will match the image but people are, are sort of more used to purchasing online trying it and then maybe returning it or maybe keeping it um yeah it's like your best fashion piece for 2020 or 2019 2020 so i think um both the best and, and probably the well maybe not controversial but most um sort of significant in the uk at least came quite early on and it was to, so just taking a step back it's quite difficult to protect three-dimensional objects like clothing in the uk under copyright law or it was until this case came out which is um called Response Against Edinburgh Woollen Mill. And essentially this applied a case that came out, um, I think in Portugal um, a few years ago and was it went up to the European Court of Justice. And it was possibly one of the last cases uh, in the UK to consider uh, European Court of Justice precedent. Um, but, you know, that's not why it's important. It essentially, it concerned a jacquard fabric. So that's a fabric which is not um, completely flat. It's where you've got a kind of raised bumpy element and what had been copied was the, the sort of bumps. And it's difficult to protect that because our copyright law protects graphical representations, but this was three-dimensional, even though it obviously it was relatively um relatively flat it wasn't completely flat and essentially the court found that it's it could be protected by copyright so even though it was not a completely flat surface that it was possible for copyright protection to apply uh, I mean, this is a real paraphrasing of the judgment but I don't want to you know it's not so interesting to go into the details and essentially this is quite an important change because it where you had something that was more than three years old or which wasn't first made available in the European economic area or designed by um, someone who was from the EU or from one of various other countries. So like Hong Kong, New Zealand and some Caribbean countries where there was a reciprocal agreement. Unless you kind of fell within one of the qualifying criteria for a design, it wasn't possible to protect a lot of three dimensional clothing um, and bags and accessories and all that sort of thing as well. So it's it's not necessarily the most well-known or the most exciting, but in terms of importance, um, certainly in the UK, that was probably the number one case. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so what are the trends you think we should be looking out for in 2021 uh, with regards to the fashion industry? 
Well, I mean, obviously nobody um, necessarily looks at the way that I dress and thinks that I'm a trendsetter, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think the, um, obviously some bricks and mortar stores, well, fingers crossed, the vaccine looks like it's going to be rolled out and I suspect that it will be possible to go back to stores before too long. And I think... Um, a trend that we were starting to see before COVID will um, will sort of really take off, which is stores as much more of an experience. So having a mixture of cafes and co-working spaces and selling, um, you know, much more concessions and pop-ups within larger stores. Um, I suspect that that will be a, a big trend that will continue because they'll be wanting to entice people back into physical locations and I think people will want that as well uh, having been sort of cooped up at home for a long time so that I suspect will be one trend and then I don't know it's really hard to say with fashion you know some people are predicting that we're going to be in athleisure forever but I mean if normally in fashion we go from one extreme to another so it wouldn't surprise me if suddenly everybody goes back to wearing like really fancy suits and clothing just because that hasn't been a possibility for ages. I'm not like, it doesn't seem like a logical change, but that's just the way the fashion industry is, right? It's not necessarily about logic. Um, and I think yeah. generally fun is something that we have lacked. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it wouldn't surprise mm. me if we get some really bold colours and, um, you know, exciting new designs. Uh, coming out of the back of all of this and and then obviously as I touched on earlier like sustainability is going to become much more important and, and having a lot more transparency around supply chains and that side of things. So what would you say is the best form of IP to protect um, fashion designers from counterfeiting and their goods being imitated out there? So I mean there's two that are important in different ways I think trademarks are amazing and underappreciated rights obviously um, I think most people are aware that you can get a trademark that covers a word and potentially a logo but a lot of people don't necessarily know that you can protect in some circumstances a color or the shape of a product those tend to only be available for really well-known products, but it's still, um, that is a really valuable way of, of having a measure of exclusivity over a different brand. Um, then the sort of, what happens quite a lot, maybe not so much with counterfeits, but with other types of copies is that the, um, the thing that's taken isn't the name of the product or the name of the brand, but the look of it. So, for example, you might copy the Louis Vuitton fabric, but not any of the trademarks. So if that happens, then designs in the shape of the product or in the particular pattern can be really valuable. And that I think a combination of a good trademark portfolio together with designs is really important. And I mean, one of the things that I notice across my practice is how little designs are understood. 
Um, and that's because they're technically quite complicated. But in Europe, we have a much stronger designs regime than in most countries around the world because we offer both registered design and unregistered designs. And um, although the UK is diverging, that uh, approach will continue after the end of the year when we officially leave the EU. So I think, yeah, I, I would say probably the most important for the fashion industry specifically is designs, but the um, the sort of the key right to always have is a trademark. So what are the issues that you think fashion designers face? I mean, it's a long list, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's um, all of the things around copying. There's all of the worrying about supply chains. There are big problems around returns of goods and making sure that, you know, any offering is compliant with local law. Uh, you know, so that concerns um, the sort of the basic terms and conditions around uh, supply of goods, but it also concerns things like, you um, uh, you know GDPR so data protection and that side of things like keeping customer data secure um, making sure that um, you know particularly if you're taking payment and, and storing payment details that you're compliant with the different regulations around that you know there's just lots and lots of things for fashion designers to worry about so it's um, I think the really important thing is to to work with people who have a bit more experience and so uh, when you're growing to sort of um, not try and do too many things like if you're a designer then it's better to team up with someone who's good on the business side of things rather than trying to do everything yourself. What do you, in your opinion what is the importance of contract and documentation in the fashion industry? I mean, obviously, um, having good contractual protection is important for every business. I, I think fashion um, and creative industries generally are less good at getting contracts in place. Um, I think that's partly because creative, you know, it's not the most exciting thing in the world. And if you're a creative personality, then you probably would rather spend your time creating a new design than um, checking the contract um the contractual situation is all sorted out and all the admin is is under control <laughs> um so i mean the kind of common problems are around agents being appointed and then maybe um a distributor registering a trademark thinking um that they're doing you a favor but then they have a, a trademark for your brand in a country and that can create quite a big problem if you fall out with a distributor in the future um, or, and you, you don't own your rights necessarily around the world and it can be quite time consuming and expensive to get that right back. So it's always important to make sure that um, you're protected contractually there, but also you know, ideally to file the trademark first so that they just don't have that opportunity. Those are the kind of things where that I see quite quite commonly. And obviously around sort of more confidential information, like, um, you know, potentially the supply chain and pricing that's being paid for goods and that sort of thing as well. Okay, so in wrapping up now, 
what is always your best fashion brand and what is the best mode of resolving fashion related distance um so i think it's what works best for dispute resolution tends to vary a lot on the type of issue and the way in which the parties are negotiating so sometimes i mean obviously getting a settlement is um generally the best route for everyone because you have a quick result and you've got certainty but you shouldn't settle with someone who's being extremely unreasonable um so if you can't get to a fair solution through negotiation then going through the court system is is just a necessary process to to go through the, what's really fun and interesting about fashion is it's so international so you can be quite strategic around which countries to litigate in potentially going through the registries um, like the trademark registries um, rather than necessarily going through the courts so you might apply to invalidate someone's rights if they're suing you for example rather than necessarily um, applying for a declaration uh, of non-infringement I don't you know there's there's just lots of different different options I don't think that there's the best route it um it just really depends on how much money is at stake how important it is to the business because sometimes you might have a really important brand where there's you know the actual number of infringing goods might not be that substantial but the damage associated with somebody selling it is quite substantial um, like Burberry with all of the copies that were common in the early 2000s is quite a good example of that. Like not necessarily each counterfeit a major lot of money, but the overall impression of all of these counterfeit goods on sale was very damaging for the brand. So, yeah, it's, it's like all lawyers, I'm not going to give a, a simple answer. It just depends a bit on the circumstances and on the... Um, you know, the relative financial situation of everyone involved. So you didn't tell us your your best I, I mean, that's because I don't really have one. And also, I, I work for quite a few fashion brands, so I wouldn't want anyone to feel left out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Rosie. It's been a pleasure having you. Oh, and that's very oh, thank exciting. you. It's been really great to join um, you. I really appreciate it. And so we've come to the end of this episode with Rosie on Fashion Law. Um, let me know what you guys think about it. If you learned something new, please let me know if you're a fashion designer. And please take this episode seriously. Until the next IP series, Christmas edition. Cheers, guys. Bye.